Welcome to the Valve Chronicles by Clay Valve, your trusted partner since 1936 for the world's highest quality automatic control valves. Join us as we share insights and discuss products that are often invisible, but always essential. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Valve Chronicles, a podcast from Clayval. I'm your host, Tyler Kern. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the show. Now, this is the fourth episode in a series that takes a look at the differences in aircraft fueling operations between the United States and Europe. If you've missed any of the previous episodes, make sure to go back and check those out. They have been excellent. And today, we're taking a look at the differences in vehicle design and how those came about. And we have our two subject matter experts back on the show. We have Tom Boriak, Global Market Manager for Fueling at Clayval. Tom, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. You used subject matter uh, expert last week or the last time we did a episode and I listened to it back and I was like, I, I don't know that I'm really an expert, but uh, <laughs> I'll do my best. But uh, glad to be back and look forward to this topic today. Uh, you're, you're, you're just too humble. That's all. That's all. <laughs> uh, we also have Richard Hooten back on the show with us as well. He's the market manager for aviation and ground fueling EMEA at Clayval Europe. Richard, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Thank you, Tyler. I'm very well. I'm glad you didn't mention subject matter expert in my intro. So over to you, Tom. <laughs> well, we're, we're leaning heavily on Tom today, it sounds like. Uh... Well, you know, it's it's. Uh, I've got a little background on fueling equipment. Uh, so obviously coming from operations background and then spent uh, three years with a uh, beta fueling systems, a truck um, manufacture for fueling equipment. So have a, have a little bit, bit of background in it. And of course, um, as, as well as Richard being with Clayval, we provide components for those trucks, but we get to see a lot out in the industry. Um, and we get to see some nuances in operations and fueling equipment, uh, across the industry, me, uh, going and visiting operations with Richard in Europe seeing how they do things over there. Um, some of my background uh, with one of the organizations I worked with that was global um, and how they did things. So that that history. And then obviously Richard's been over here to the US. We've gotten him into a couple of operations over here. Um, I think one of the biggest standouts is how we use equipment. Let's, you know, before we even start talking a little bit about the design, you know, I, I think one of the biggest topics is the use of the equipment and what is used and where is it used. People in the industry know that, you know, we have hydrant systems. Uh, I think it's something like 333 or 335 airports globally now, um, which use uh, hydrant vehicles uh, for fueling aircraft. And the remaining airports use refueling trucks, tanker trucks, Bowsers. I think there's a, a different name in every region of the world um, in what they call them. And essentially, that's a, a big tanker truck that carries the fuel with it um, and hooks up and fuels the aircraft versus a hydrant vehicle that takes fuel uh, from the ground that's pumped from the fuel facility and kept at a pressure in an underground fuel system. Yeah, so the biggest nuanced or variance difference is in the U.S. Richard can tell you and support this is is he came over. One of the what we see is in the U.S. we use stationary hydrant vehicles. So these are small carts that that do all the functions that stay at a gate that an aircraft pulls into, an operator goes out hooks up to it, hooks up to the hydrant system, uh, actually in reverse order, hooks up to the hydrant system, then hooks up to the aircraft uh, after all the appropriate processes such as bonding. But we use stationary vehicles and that makes up probably 2,000 plus fueling vehicles uh, in the US, somewhere close to that number. We also use fueling 
uh, hydrant fueling trucks or, or uh, hydrant dispensers. Those make up a majority. A guy gets in it, drives to an aircraft, fuels, finishes, goes to another aircraft, fuels that, keeps moving around uh, the terminal or the airport, uh, multiple different terminals for the fueling processes. Whereas in Europe and, and really globally, they rely on that method. They don't have a lot of stationary hydrant vehicles. So they rely on the mobile variety. Uh, so that's the biggest variance we probably see in use of vehicles across the pond and around the world. Tom, you're absolutely correct, as always. Uh, you're right, we have over here in our part of the world predominantly refuelers, um, Bowser's, as you said, the truck that drives around with its fuel in, on its uh, back, effectively, and then we have hydrant services or hydrant vehicles, and they're used in the main international airports where we have a hydrant system running fuel around the ground and underneath. I'm interested to know, you know, what's the cutoff in the US between using a carp and a hydrant vehicle. So we use extensively hydrant vehicles on hydranted airports everywhere. There are some carts around Europe. Example, Schiphol, I believe, has a few, as I recall. However, generally speaking, we use the hydrant vehicles. Um, so it's a very, very different concept. So, Tom, what, what's the difference? Why is it you use this mixture between some carts and some hydrant vehicles and not all of one type or all of another? Well, I, I think the initial investment's a, a little bit lower per unit. Granted, you're using more uh, vehicles, so more units. So, it, you know, where's the investment line? It's probably a push or a little bit higher. But you lose, I mean, keep cost in mind. And I think with where the world is today and, and climate and being green, you know, maybe the U.S. was ahead of the rest of the world for once on that issue, and uh, especially in the fueling industry. But, uh, you know, hydrant, stationary hydrant vehicles don't have engines. They don't use running fuel, you know, so they don't have the maintenance cost associated with that either. You know, that's running gear, it stays there. Largely, you know, a lot of the aircraft used at a majority of the airports uh, in the U.S. is narrow body aircraft for a lot of the domestic traveling. So it's easy to keep a cart in the same position to serve multiple narrow body aircraft. Um, and typically, one, I think one of the biggest variances that I see, and, and someone, one of these real subject matter, matter experts out there can call me out on this, but an airline will typically have the same gates that it uses all the time uh, in its agreement with the airport. So airline X, you know, has all one fleet type, and we'll just say they're 737s and anybody can read between the lines. And they use the same gates all the time. Well, they can put a stationary cart there and it's always going to be in the same position to service that aircraft. And they may need a step stool or a ladder to service that aircraft. Whereas in Europe, you're, you see that gates are open. And a lot of times an aircraft doesn't know what gate it's going to until just before it lands. And so it's a multi-use airport. You can have airline X with a, an Airbus A320 on it. It gets pushed back and then airline... Y comes in with a, a 787 on the same gate and you can't necessarily use a stationary vehicle or cart in an instance like that. You'd have to have multiple different size uh, ladders or platforms to be fueling from. The cart would have to be in a different position. Um, and then also the difference between narrow bodies and wide bodies. I mean, an A320 is going to take fuel at, call it 220 to 250 gallons per minute on average for the most part. 
maybe a little bit quicker if you're going to a big load and filling all the tanks. Um, whereas a 787 is going to suck the fuel in. So you need a vehicle that's capable of putting in 600, 800 gallons per minute um, into that vehicle. So I think the airport design, the airport usage and aircraft usage within those airports makes a lot of those decisions. So essentially, almost uh, the way we do things here necessitates a mobile type of fueling vehicle rather than a stationary car. I, I think largely, yeah. I think, you know, Schiphol, uh, home of the airline with blue airplanes, you know, they they have a large control on that airport due to the amount of flights they have and how they can stage aircraft. So they have some gates they can use stationary equipment on because they're servicing the same fleet type on those gates or similar. You know, it might be, and I don't know is a fact, but it might be that on those gates, they can't put wide body aircraft. So all their narrow bodies go to those gates and that's what they have to service them. Makes a lot of sense. Also, I think in, in our part of the world, it could be that the, the size of the airport, not in terms of its throughput and flights, but the geographical size, the size of the stands and so on and so forth, perhaps are a little bit tighter. Um, could it be the case, Tom, that you've got a little bit more room to stand a cart on a stand permanently, whereas we don't have that same same room in many of our older, more traditional airports over here? I actually think you'll probably have more room at most of your airports um, because most of your gates, especially at the international airports, most of your gates are built for mixed use. So they're they're, they're built to handle narrow body to wide body. So if you can imagine, um, let's take a visit to Heathrow where you've got the Queen, the 747s, you know, stacked side by side. And OK, so now it's, you know, triple sevens or uh, 787s or A350s or A380s. You know, you've got these really large aircraft that have to be side by side. And there's plenty that creates a lot of room around the aircraft. So the U.S., and, and there, it's changing. And, and I think the engineering and the design is changing here to give more mixed-use gates like that. Um, but a lot of them are designed with a just a, okay, these gates are only going to service narrow body. You know, I'll go back to the 737. You know, airports were designed a long time ago with these hydrant systems. And they go in and they're using a 737, you know, back in the day, call it a 300, maybe even a 200 if you get really old in those aircraft. Um, then as the 737, 700s, 800s, 900s, and maxes have come out, their wingspan gets a little bit longer. Then they go and put winglets on it. They get even longer. And then they go and put scimitars on it and they get longer on the bottom side. Well, all of a sudden, you get a create a whole lot more congestion where you, they could hardly get a provisioning truck between the two wings of the aircraft. So I, I think y'all actually have more room. Now, that was probably a little long-winded to tell you you have more room, but hopefully that, that shares the picture a little bit. And I thought you guys in the U.S. always did things bigger and better than us over here. That's just Texas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. That well, that that was gonna be that was gonna be one of my questions, honestly. So I'm 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 from Texas, the land of oversized trucks for no apparent reason, <laughs> and um and, and so my and anytime I go to Europe, one of the things that that immediately strikes me is all your cars are tiny, and um <laughs> and so I I look around and I think this is just very different. So that was gonna be my potentially very ignorant question is that. I picture uh, um, just cars and vehicles in general in America always being larger than that uh, of Europe. And it sounds like that might not necessarily be the case. Yeah. Not, in fueling, I don't think it's necessarily the case. Um, 
you know, even to a design concept of, I mean, a, a hydrant dispenser, you know, let's just talk about this for a second, you know, and one of the biggest differences between Europe and the US and hydrant dispensers. So you've got, think of this like a, Tyler, the best way to re- relate it is you've got like a little Zusu truck chassis, like you see a little, the little bread trucks with a box on the back running around for deliveries and stuff. Mm-hmm. That's a typical size chassis that a hydrant dispenser is built on. Well, in the US, we have the hydrant hose. So it's a two and a half, three inch intake hose from the hydrant system to the truck. And it's usually on a reel on the back of the truck or off the side of the truck. Well, in Europe and globally, they, and this kind of goes back to an ergonomics discussion, but what they do is they take that hose and they come off the side of the truck and they wrap all the way around the back of the truck. So you've got an extra foot and a half sticking out on either side of that chassis. So it actually makes you a bigger, wider footprint. Now, the ergonomics of that and why they do that is they've got a rail that goes around. The hose has casters and hooks on it so they can, you know, nobody's having to lift and manhandle a a large hose off of a reel. So it, it goes back to their ergonomics and why they have a design like that. But they definitely have bigger footprints with their vehicles. Even in the Bowser world, you know, and, and tankers, you know, they've got really large trucks, 15,000 gallons, um, 40,000, you know, um, 40,000 liters. So, and, and I don't know the exact conversion, and that's probably wrong. Richard, with his mixed system over there in the UK, might be able to tell us better, metric and imperial. But, uh, you know, they've even got trucks that are articulated, so they pivot between the chassis and the tank as they're coming around as far as a Bowser's. And they've got some that pull two tanks, you know, and maybe that goes to another discussion we had of you've got career people driving those versus a guy you're paying $10 an hour. Right. Uh, I, I quite frankly, would it would scare me a little bit to have someone driving a articulated fuel truck in the US. It is around occasionally. It's just not very common. So yeah, Tom, Tom, to your point. So we have typically over here somewhere in the region of, I guess, a a 20,000 litre rigid refueler. So that's a refueler on a rigid chassis with a tank of its own going up to the sort of articulated trucks where we've probably got 45,000 litres in terms of storage on the back of the truck. And then if it has got, again, a a towable trailer on the back, we're up to even 60,000 litres or more of fuel being towed around. So our trucks are pretty big in that respect. So Tyler, you know, we spoke about the the refuelers and the fact that they carry their own fuel around. We spoke a bit about hydrant vehicles, which is, you know, essentially a pump on wheels that drives around and sucks the fuel out. And then the carts stay on stand, but do a similar job to the hydrant vehicles. So, you know, we three spoke about this a little bit before I know, but what we tend to do over here is we'll send our vehicles out. They'll all go on their merry way. They'll go from job to job. Maybe in a busy day, they'll park somewhere on the apron, on the airport. They'll carry on and they'll finish their shift. And then usually at the end of the day, at the oper- at the end of the operator's shift, they'll drive back to the facility where, you know, the operating company is housed and all the vehicles will park up. And typically then they're left there overnight. You know, and we kind of, we, we, we put the vehicles to bed effectively, um, lock them away. And then in the morning, we wake them all up again. And then we do our daily routine of wandering around them, checking them and all those kind of things before they're sent off on their merry way. So there's a number of different checks we have to do. Some daily, 
some quarterly. The checks that instantly come to mind, for example, might be a monthly strainer check or a quarterly pressure control check. We even do daily drains of water, free water from filter water separator vessels, filter water monitor vessels as well. So I'm just intrigued to know, Tom, you know, given that we bring the vehicles back and then we have ample opportunity to do all of this QC checking and testing and walk-arounds before the vehicles are again dispatched for the next day's work. How does that work on a, a, a large airport there where you've maybe got 100 to 150 carts and so on? How do you manage to keep on top of that task? You know, it, it can be a challenge. I mean, it is. It, it Operators do stay on top of it. So, and we do very similar daily checks uh, monthly checks, quarterly checks, annual checks, and you know where we are using tankers or bowsers and or hydrant dispenser trucks. Those all do kind of go back to a specified parking area or to the shop. In, in most operations, it's largely the operator using that vehicle that's doing that daily quality control check on the vehicle before they start operations. Whereas I think because all of your trucks are at the shop, they either do it overnight or right before the operation starts and Maybe that's a maintenance function. Um, some operations here for sure have quality control guys that go around and do those. It really just depends on the operation and the size and the funding they have. But the, yeah, it, it can present a challenge because it is true. It's at the gate, but that check is still done every day. It doesn't mean it's not done because it's at the gate. And each operation has to overcome its hurdles. You know, for a long time, stationary hydrant carts were built and you had to do a, a filter sample on it every day. And, and grade it accordingly and make sure there's no water in it. Or if there was, take another sample, make sure that next sample is clear. What the problem was is, well, now you have a bucket of fuel sitting out there on the ramp because you didn't have anywhere to put it. Well, equipment OEMs worked with operators and started putting yeah, a waste tank or a slop tank where it can be opened up, it's sealed, they can dump the waste fuel in. And then a quality or a guy or a mechanic line guy comes around and you know, drains all of those into a larger container on back of a truck or the vac truck comes around and sucks them all out um, on a regular basis. So, you know, equipment has evolved for some of these practices as well. But it, it's definitely a, a variance in it and on who's doing that work and why and where. And it'll be it'll be interesting for sure as we evolve and, you know, global harmonization and what does that look like. But I, I think operations are still left up to the operators and how they want to handle it and manage it. And auditors go out and check it. And as long as the auditors aren't having any issues or find any findings that they're not doing it, you know, largely it'll stay the way it is. So it's interesting to hear you say that by having this kind of cart way of working, you actually create the additional task or the additional role, if you like, of the guy that's driving around and, and emptying the slops tanks, whereas we don't have that same kind of functionality or requirement here because of course our vehicles are working in a different manner um so do you see tom any differences in how equipment stands up in the field wear and tear um, between carts where it's always outside and vehicles where it's returned to base is it is it a harsh environment because it's always outside and it's not getting the tlc that a truck might get when it comes back to the shop I mean, they're they're all outside, right? I mean, you don't have a big enough space on an airport to go park all these trucks inside, nor would you want to, um, unless it's being maintained. And even then, a lot of times it's still done outside. So you're not really changing the elements it's in. Uh, it's just parked next to a shop or it's parked out at the gate. Yeah, a different person's doing that daily check. But if something's, something's wrong, if they go through that daily check and they go, oh, 
you know, I, I, I found this cut in the hose. Well, the mechanic will come out, take a look at it, determine if it's okay to stay in service or if it doesn't need to be pulled out and fixed or, 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 you know, so they can make those decisions based off that. I don't think it changes. Um, I think conditions, uh, climate at different airports can affect it. You know, doing a, a stationary fueling cart in Florida or in Southern California, where it's nice and always sunny, uh, and you use a solar panel to give you power to the, the few things that need power, uh, a meter register, a data capture system. When you when you have that solar panel, when you where you have a lot of sun, it's great. Uh, you go somewhere to Chicago um, in the winter or Seattle or even Boston in the winter, you know, where you might only have a handful of hours of good sun a day to, you know, recharge that battery. Maybe it is a little different there. I mean, we still get by and there's some different methods and someone has to stay on top of making sure the solar panels are cleaned off after a snowstorm in places like that, uh, just so it continues to get good snow. So different practices in different places uh, or locations are put in place uh, specific to that airport. So this is now, Tyler, why you understand that solar-powered carts don't work here in London because I think the general consensus for you guys is it's always foggy and rainy over here in London. <laughs> That's what I've been told. That's why they just don't work. You, that's all you tell us, Richard. I mean, you tell us how poor the weather is over there and, and how, how great it is to, you know, have the weather we do in Southern California. Yeah, well, I, I can only wish to be in Southern California. It's again April here in England and we've got snow. <laughs> what can I tell you? So the one thing that you haven't heard me say yet so far in any of these podcasts is that I think you guys just might have the upper hand on us here um, oh, when it comes to this concept. We are recording, right? You got this, that one this time, Tyler? <laughs> uh, uh, we are rolling, and I've actually marked this moment so we can clip <laughs> just this. No, it's all right. Ty Tyler will edit that part out when we come to the end. So, you know, we've been talking a lot here recently and about the carbon footprint of vehicles. You know, there's this huge drive to tidy up the carbon footprint of everything that we do around an airport, including the airplanes themselves. So, you know, I do see that there is a huge advantage in having these stationary carts versus a vehicle that's driving around constantly from aircraft to aircraft. Going forward, maybe that's a good idea and something that we should think about again and try to adopt more so over here, just based on the carbon footprint alone. Well, I, I think you're, you're, you're right there, Richard. The big focus is going green and reducing the carbon footprint. Uh, airlines are moving in it into sustainable aviation fuel, SAF, you know, and reducing the carbon footprint there into a renewable, for like, yeah, lack of better terms, a renewable fuel. You know, you're seeing the likes of some equipment OEMs venture out into some electric fueling vehicles or power off fueling vehicles uh, around the world, not just in Europe, but in the US as well. Uh, I think, you know, uh, one of the oil companies that did some operations uh, in Texas, I mean, not just Texas, but across the U.S. They had an operation in Texas, but they had they they were probably the f leader in it. But I mean, they they used electric hydrogen dispensers over a decade ago, you know. So that it's not it's not a new concept. It's becoming more affordable to do it. Um, I could probably have a whole conversation uh, on a separate podcast outside of this of is an electric dispenser reducing your carbon footprint. And how much is it reducing the carbon footprint? And is it as green because you have a whole lot of batteries you have to care for now? But that's a whole other discussion outside of this. Um, I think we all need to be environmentally conscious in the impact we're making. Uh, so if there are ways to improve that 
and if that's power off fueling or if that's using electric dispensers. Um, you know, I, I think some people have even ventured into some smaller electric uh, bowsers or tankers in some operations. I think I remember at IATA, one of the oil companies did a, a co-sponsored project or they funded a project to get an, an electric refueler to put it through its paces. Uh, largely, you know, one of the biggest issues we faced with electric fueling vehicles, uh, such as a hydrant dispenser, is the amount of time, you know, could you start a, and use a fully charged electric hydrant dispenser all day? You know, can it go to the rigors of driving around for 15 hours stop and go or 16 hours, whatever that full day is? Or do you need the ability to go down for, you know, two hours with a rapid charger? And then does that increase your fleet size? You know, there's a lot of discussions on, on what you need to do there. Um, I think where you can use something like a stationary hydrant cart that doesn't have any necessity to be mobile, I think is, is really smart, but I realize it's not a one size fits all application. So what about new technology, Tom, when it comes to what we do when we fuel? So there's a lot of different technologies coming in terms of even fueling nozzles, for example. Um, we've spoken a lot about in the past breakaway couplers, even with filter vessels, the change in filter technology, um, sensors on vehicles now to look for free water and dirt. Now, again, to come back to the essence of what we do here, we might have 40 vehicles running around on an airport maintaining every aircraft that comes in, whereas you have a fleet of 150 carts, for example, as well. Um, to do the same kind of duty. So what about conversion of those carts to, to, to keep up with the latest technologies and requirements of the industry? You know, it seems to be an expensive way to go. I said that you may have the march on us, but from an operational point of view, is it the most economical way to go? Well, well, there's simpler designs. You know, I think that's, that's where it starts. You know, stationary carts don't require interlock systems. And since they don't require interlock systems, you don't necessar necessarily need to put a PLC on them. It's just essentially think of it as a computer to look at all the different functions and make sure it's working properly. It's a pretty simple design. Um, so you reduce a lot of the maintenance expense. It's a trade-off on cost. Yes, okay, do you need to add a digital register to that meter? Okay, yeah, great. It's just going to take more power. So you just have to make sure that the um, batteries, battery or batteries, maybe you have to add a battery, um, is capable of managing that all day with the trickle charge from a solar panel. Can it keep up? And as you add more technology, you just have to be aware of that power draw. Uh, and it's adopted. And I mean, we're starting to talk about technology, which, you know, it'll be an interesting discussion next week because, yeah, technology is coming up all over the place. I think back in 2015, maybe, at the Inner Airport in Munich, if that's the right year, I think it's the right year, Someone did a prototype, an Italian manufacturer did a prototype of a full electronic dispenser with probes and, you know, ev everything was by wire. There wasn't really any hydraulics uh, to the vehicle. But one of the things you could face, and I think I've mentioned this previously, is, you know, you take a truck like that and it would, it'll work great in Europe or in the U.S., and where you have a place that it can be supported. You start adding a lot of this technology and you send it down to the islands in the South Pacific 
Well, all of a sudden, you got a problem if something goes wrong with it. Uh, so we have to keep in mind some balance of keep it simple, stupid, and making sure we progress with technology as well. Well, guys, I think that that is a pretty good and comprehensive look at uh, at the difference in vehicle design between these two regions and maybe why those uh, differences exist. Uh, we even got Richard to make quite a large uh, admission on this podcast. And so, man, I think we've uh, we've ticked a lot of boxes. Any, any closing thoughts, anything else we want to say here uh, as we wrap up the fourth episode in this series? My view on it is there's not a one-size-fits-all. Every operation's got to be looked at. Uh, I think as long as, as a group, as an industry, and I believe we are from the airlines to the operators, um, to the oil companies involved, even the OEMs, everybody's looking for those opportunities to improve the fueling equipment necessary for those different operations so that they're purpose fit. Um, And purpose fit is really what we've got to look at. You know, we're not going to be there, there again, there's not a one size fits all, and we have to keep that in mind. And again, I, I, we, I think we've talked through it pretty comprehensively, but that would, I guess, be my parting thought. Yeah, I don't really have any additional passing thoughts, Tyler, other than just to remind you, please edit out the omission I made, whereupon I think the US might be slightly ahead of us with the with the carbon footprint thing. Beyond that, I think we've covered it. So we got an admission from him, and we left him speechless because he had no comments there to end it. That's that's pretty good. <laughs> I think that's uh, I think that's an episode that uh, that truly checks all the boxes <laughs> and uh, and meets all of the requirements. And so yeah. I'm not sure I'll be uh, I'm not sure I'll be promoting this one. <laughs> the, R- Richard will not be putting this one on his LinkedIn. I think uh, you know to uh, to avoid further uh, further teasing and ridicule. Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, well, Tom and Richard, these episodes are always a lot of fun, and you guys always uh, do a great job of, of getting to uh, the root of the conversation. And uh, and again, Tom, I think a great point. Uh, that it's it's not a one size fits all thing. That that different settings and different situations call for different solutions. I think that's a great way to put it and a great way to leave it for this episode. So once again. Tom Boriak, Richard Hooten. Guys, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of The Valve Chronicles. Thank you, Tyler. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Tyler. And everyone out there, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. We will be back soon with more episodes. But until then, make sure you subscribe, stay up to date, and uh, stay tuned for more episodes coming your way shortly. But until then, I've been your host today, Tyler Kern. Thanks for listening. <laughs>